Welcome again, dear listeners. Please, pull a chair up to the fire and get a drink. After a brief hiatus, yours cruelly is back and ready to serve up another frightful offering in the realm of weird fiction on Dreadtime Stories, Back from the Grave. This week, I'm sharing a ghastly excerpt from one of Sir Walter Scott's books entitled Wandering Willie's Tale, a story about a man who must travel the plains beyond in order to get what is rightfully his. Can Steenie Steenson get the receipt that will prove he paid his rent? Find out in Wandering Willie's Tale. I'll be back after to introduce this week's episode of the Magnus Archives. Scare and enjoy! by Tony Addison Wandering Willie's Tale by Sir Walter Scott Honest folks like me How do you ken whether I am honest or what I am? I may be the devil himself for what ye ken for he has poor to come disguised like an angel of light and besides he is a prime fiddler he played a sonata to Karadi ye ken there was something odd in this speech, and the tone in which it was said. It seemed as if my companion was not always in his constant mind, or that he was willing to try if he could frighten me. I laughed at the extravagance of his language, however, and asked him in reply if he was fool enough to believe that the foul fiend would play so silly a masquerade. "'You can little about it, little about it,' said the old man shaking his head and beard and knitting his brows i could tell you something about that what his wife mentioned of his being a tale-teller as well as a musician now occurred to me and as you know i like tales of superstition i begged to have a specimen of his talent as we went along it is very true said the blind man that when I am tired of scraping therum, 
or singing balance i whiles make a tale serve the turn among the country bodies and i have some fearsome aims that make the old colleen shake on the settle and the bits of barren skirl on their minnies outfree their beds but this that i am going to tell you was a thing that befell in our ain house in my father's time that is my father was then a hapland's callant and i tell it to you that it may be a lesson to you that i but a young thoughtless chap what ye draw up we on a lonely road for muckle was the dool and care that came o it to my good sire he commenced his tale accordingly in a distinct narrative tone of voice which he raised and depressed with considerable skill at times sinking almost into a whisper and turning his clear but sightless eyeballs upon my face as if it had been possible for him to witness the impression which his narrative made upon my features i will not spare a syllable of it although it be of the longest so i make a dash and begin ye mun have heard of sir robert radgauntlet of that ilk who lived in these parts before the dear years the country will lang mind him and our fathers used to draw breath thick if ever they heard him named he was out with a Highlandman in montrose's time and again he was in the hills we glencairn in the sixteen hundred and fifty twat and said when king charles the second came in wa was in sick fever as the laird of redgauntlet he was knighted at lunnon court with the king's ain sword and being a red-hot proletus he came down here rampaging like a lion with commission of lieutenancy and of lunacy for what i can to put down all the whigs and covenanters in the country wild work they made of it for the whigs were as dour as the cavaliers were fierce and it was which should first tire the other red gauntlet was i for the strong hand and his name is kenned as wide in the country as clubhouses or tamdaliels glen nor dargal nor mountain nor cave could hide the poor hill folk when red gauntlet was out with bugle and bloodhound after them as if they had been same many deer and truth when they found them they didna make muckle mere ceremony than a highlandman we a roebuck it was just will ye tuck the test if not make ready present fire and there lay the recusant far and wide was sir robert hated and feared men thought he had a direct compact with satan that he was proof against steel and that bullets happed up his buff coat like hailstones from a hearth that he had a mare that would turn a hair on the side of Carafragon's, a precipitous side of a mountain in Moffatdale, 
and muckle to the same purpose of wilk mere anon the best blessing they wared on him was deal scope we red gauntlet he was near bad master to his ain folk though and was weel enough liked by his tenants and as for the lackeys and troopers that raid out wi him to the persecutions as the whigs called those killing times they would a drunken themselves blind to his health at any time now you are to ken that my good sire lived on red gauntlet's ground they called the place primrose now we had lived on the ground and under the red gauntlets since the riding days and lang before it was a pleasant bit and i think the air is callerer and fresher there than anywhere else in the country it's all deserted now and i sat on the broken dark cheek three days since and was glad i couldna see the plight the place was in but that's all wide of the mark there dwelt my good sire steenie steenson a rambling rattling till he had been his young days and could play wheel on the pipes he was famous at hoopers and girders Oh, Cumberland could not touch him a chucky Latin, and he had the finest finger for the back between Berwick and Carlisle. The like of Steenie was another set that they made wigs of, and so he became a Tory, as they called it, which we now call Jacobites, just out of a kind of necessity that he might belong to some side or other. He had nae ill will to the Whig bodies, and liked little to see the blood run, though, being obliged to follow Sir Robert in hunting and hoisting, watching and warding, he saw muckle mischief, and maybe did some that he couldna avoid. Now, Steenie was a kind of favourite with his master, and kenned all the folk about the castle, and was often sent for to play the pipes when they were at their merriment. Old Dougal MacCullum the butler, that had followed Sir Robert through good and ill, thick and thin, pool and stream, was specially fond of the pipes, and I gave my good sire his good word with the laird, for Dougal could turn his master round his finger. Weel, Rune came the revolution, and it had like to a broken the hearts, both the Dougal and his master. But the change was not altogether so great as they feared, and other folk thought for. The Whigs made an uncool crawling what they would do with their old enemies, and in special we saw Robert Redgauntlet but there were o'er many great folks dipped in the same doings to make a spick and span new world so parliament passed it o'er easy and sir robert baiting that he was held to hunting foxes instead of covenanters remained just the man he was his revel was as good and his hall as weel lighted as ever it had been though maybe he lacked the fines of the nonconformists 
that used to come to stock his larder and sell it, for it is certain he began to be keener about the rents than his tenants used to find him before, and they behold to be prompt to the rent day, or else the laird was not pleased. And he was sick and asked somebody that nobody cared to anger him, for the odds he swore, and the rage that he used to get into, and the looks that he put on made men sometimes think him a devil incarnate. Weel, my good sire was nae manager, nor that he was a very great misguided, but he had another saving gift, and he got twa terms rent in a rear. He got the first brush at Whitsunday put o'er with fair wood and piping, but when Martinmas came, there was a summons from the groaned officer to come with your rent on a day precise, or else Deanie behoved to flit. Sarah work he had to get the siller, but he was weel friended, and at last he got the heel scraped together, a thousand marks. The maist of it was from a neighbour they called Laurie Leprick, a sly tod. Laurie had wealth the gear, could hunt with a hound, and run with a hare, and be Whig, or Tory, saint, or sinner, as the wind stood. He was a professor in the revolution world, but he liked an arraso of the world, and a tune on the pipes, wheel enough for to buy time. And Bonat, he thought he had good security for the siller, he lend my good sire o'er the stocking at Primosno. Away trots my good sire to Red Gauntlet Castle, wi' a heavy purse and a light heart, glad to be out of the laird's danger. Weel, the first thing he learned at the castle was that Sir Robert had fretted himself into a fit of the goat, because he did no appear before twelve o'clock. It was not altogether for sake of the money, Dougal thought but because he did not like to put with my good sire up the ground. Dougal was glad to see Steenie, and brought him into the great oak parlour, and there sat the laird, his leesome lane, excepting that he had beside him a great ill-favoured jackanip that was a special pet of his. A cankered beast it was, and mony an ill-natured trick it played. Ill to please it was, and easily angered, ran about the hale castle, chattering and rolling, and pinching and biting folk, specially before ill weather, or disturbance in the state. Sir Robert called it Major Weir, after the warlock that was burnt, and few folk liked either the name or the conditions of the creature. They thought there was something in it by ordinary and my good sire was not just easy in mind when the door shut on him, and he saw himself in the room with nobody but the laird, Dougal MacCallum, and the major, a thing that hadn't a chance to him before. Sir Robert sat, or I should say lay, in a great armchair, with his grand velvet gown, and his feet on a cradle, for he had baith goot and gravel, 
and his face looked as gashed and ghastly as Satan's. Major Weir sat opposite to him, in a red-laced coat, and the laird's wig on his head, and I, as Sir Robert garrand with pain, the jackanape garrand too, like a sheep's head between a pair of tongues, an ill-fared, fearsome couple they were. The laird's buff coat was hung on a pin behind him, and his broadsword and his pistols within reach, for he kept up the old fashion of having the weapons ready, and a horse saddled day and night, just as he used to do when he was able to loop on horseback and sway after any of the hill folk he could get spearings of. Some said it was for fear of the Whigs taking vengeance, but I judge it was just his old custom. He was again not fear anything. The rental book, with its black cover and brass clasps, was lying beside him, and a book of skull-duddery songs was put betwixt the leaves to keep it open at the place where it bore evidence against the good man of Primrose Snow, as behind the hand with his mails and duties. Sir Robert gave my good sire a look, as if he would have withered his heart in his bosom. Ye man can, he had a way of bending his brows, that men saw the visible mark of a horseshoe in his forehead, deep dinted, as if it had been stamped there. Ah, ye come, light-handed, ye son of a tomb whistle, said Sir Robert. Zones up your arm. My good sire, with as good a countenance as he could put on, made a leg, and placed the bag of money on the table we had dashed, like a man that does something clever. The lad drew it to him hastily. Is all here, steeny man? Your honour will find it right, said my good sire. Here, Dougal, said the laird, gistini a tuss of brandy, till I count the cellar and write the receipt. But they were a wheel out of the room, when Sir Robert gied a yellock that garred the castle rock. Back ran Dougal. In flew the livery men. Yell on yell, gied the laird, ilk ain mere awful than the other. My good sire knew not whether to stand or flee, but he ventured back into the parlour, where ah was going hurdy gurdy nobody to say come in or go out terribly the lad red for cold water to his feet and wine to cool his throat and hell 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 and his flames was i the word in his mouth they brought him water and when they plunged his swollen feet into the tub he cried out it was burning and folks say that it did bubble and sparkle like a seething cauldron. He flung the cup at Dougal's head, and said he had given him blood into the burgundy. And sure enough, the last washed clotted blood off the carpet the next day. The jackanape they caught Major Weir, it gibbered and cried as if it was mocking its master. Magutsaya's head was like to turn. He forgot both cellar and receipt, and downstairs he banged, 
but as he ran the shrieks came fainter and fainter there was a deep-drawn shivering groan and word gave to the castle that the laird was dead weel away came my good sire wi' his finger in his mouth and his best hope was that Dougal had seen the money-bag and heard the laird speak of writing the receipt the young laird now sir john came from edinburgh to see things put to rights sir john and his father never greed weel sir john had been bred an advocate and afterwards sat in the last scots parliament and voted for the union having gotten it was thought a rug of the compensations if his father could have come out of his grave he would have brained him for it on his own hearthstone some thought it was easier counting with the old rough knight than the fair-spoken youngin but mayor of that anon Dougal Macallum, poor body, neither grat nor grained, but gaed about the house, looking like a curf, but directing as was his duty, or the order of the grand funeral. Now Dougal looked aye war and war, when night was coming, and was aye the last gang to his bed, whilk was in a little room, just opposite the chamber of dais whilk his master occupied while he was living, and where he now lay in state, as they called it, wheel a day. The night before the funeral, Dougal could keep his own counsel nae longer. He came doon wi' his proud spirit, and fairly asked old Hutchin to sit in his room with him for an hour. When they were in the room, Dougal took a tass of brandy to himself, and gave another to Hutchin, and wished him all health and long life, and said that for himself he was near long for this world, for that every night since Sir Robert's death his silver call had sounded from the state chamber, just as it used to do at nights in his lifetime, to call Dougal to help to turn him in his bed. Dougal said, that being alone with the dead on that floor of the tower, for nobody cared to wake Sir Robert at Gauntlet like another corpse. He had never dared to answer the call, for that now his conscience checked him for neglecting his duty. For though death breaks service, said MacCullum, it shall never weak my service to Sir Robert, and I will answer his next whistle, so be you will stand by me, Hutchin. Hutchin had nae will to the work, but he had stood by Dougal in bottle and boil, and he would not fail him at this pinch. So doon the carl sat o'er a stoop of brandy, and Hutchin, who was something of a clerk, would have read a chapter of the Bible, but Dougal would hear nothing but a blood of Davy Lindsay, which was the wear of preparation. When midnight came, and the house was quiet as the grave, sure enough the silver whistle sounded a sharp and shrill, as if Sir Robert was blowing it, and up got the twa old serving men, and tottered into the room where the dead man lay. 
Wu Chen saw anew at the first glance, for there were torches in the room which showed him the foul fiend in his ain shape sitting on the laird's coffin, or he cooped as if he had been dead. He could not tell how long he lay in a trance at the door, but when he gathered himself, he cried on his neighbour, and getting nay answer, raised the hoose, when Dougal was found lying dead within twa steps of the bed where his master's coffin was placed. As for the whistle, it was gain ancient ae, but many a time was it heard at the top of the house on the bartizan, and among the old chimneys and turrets were the howlets of their nests. Sir John hushed the matter up, and the funeral passed over without mere bogeywork. But when all was o'er, and the laird was beginning to settle his affairs, every tenant was called up by his arrears, and my good sire, for the full sum that stood against him in the rental book. Weel, away he trots to the castle to tell his story, and there he is introduced to Sir John, sitting in his father's chair in deep mourning, with weepers and hanging cravat, and a small walking rapier by his side, instead of the old broadsword that had a hundred weight of steel about it, what with blade, shape, and basket hilt. I have heard the communing so often told over that I almost think I was there myself, though I could not be born at the time. In fact, Alan, my companion, mimicked with a good deal of humour the flattering, conciliating tone of the tenant's address and the hypocritical melancholy of the laird's reply. His grandfather, he said, had, while he spoke, his eyes fixed on the rental book as if it were a mastiff dog that he was afraid would spring up and bite him. I wish you joy, sir, of the head seat and the white loaf and the bread lordship. Your father was a kind man to friends and followers. Muckle grace to you, Sir John, to fill his shoon, his boots, I should say, for he seldom wore shoon, unless it were mules, when he had the goat. Ay, Steenie, quoth the laird, sighing deeply, and putting his napkin to his een. His was a sudden call, and he will be missed in the country. No time to set his house in order. Weel prepared Godward, no doubt, which is the root of the matter, but left us behind a tangled hesp to wine, Steenie. Hum, hum, we mun go to business, Steenie. Much to do, and little time to do it in. Here he opened the fatal volume. I have heard of a thing they call Doomsday Book. I am clear it has been a rental of backganging tenants. Stephen, said Sir John, still in the same soft, sleek tone of voice. Stephen, Stevenson, or Steenson. Ye are down here for a year's rent behind the hand, due at last term. Stephen, please your honour, Sir John, I paid it to your father. Sir John, ye took a receipt then, Dr. Stephen, and can produce it. Stephen, 
indeed i had na time on it like your honour for nae sooner had i set down the cellar and just as his honour sir robert that's gain drew it to to count it and write up the receipt he was tain with the pains that removed him that was unlucky said sir john after a pause but ye may be paid it in the presence of somebody i want but a talis qualis evidence stephen i would go o'er strictly to work with no poor man stephen truth sir john there was nobody in the room but dougal mccullum the butler but as your honour kens he has e'en followed his old master very unlucky again stephen said sir john without altering his voice a single note the man to whom ye paid the money is dead and the man who witnessed the payment is dead too and the cellar which should have been to the fort is neither seen nor heard tell of in the repositories how am i to believe all this stephen i dinna ken your honour but there is a bit memorandum note of the very coins for god help me i had to borrow out of twenty purses and i am sure that ilka man there set down will take his great oath for what purpose i borrowed the money sir john i have little doubt ye borrowed the money steenie it is the payment that i want to have proof of stephen the cellar mun be above the host sir john and since your honour never got it and his honour that was canna have tain it wi him maybe some of the family may have seen it sir john we will examine the servant stephen that is but reasonable but lackey and lass and page and groom all denied stoutly that they had ever seen such a bag of money as my good sire described what saw were he had unluckily not mentioned to any living soul of them his purpose of paying his rent i queen had noticed something under his arm but she took it for the pipes sir john read gauntlet ordered the servants out of the room and then said to my good sire now steenie you see you have fair play and as i have little doot you ken better where to find the cellar than any other body i beg in fair terms and for your own sake that you will end this fashery for stephen ye maun pay or flit the lord forgie your opinion said stephen driven almost to his wit's end i am an honest man so am i stephen said his honour and so are all the folks in the house i hope but if there be a knave amongst us it must be he that tells the story he cannot prove he paused and then added mere sternly if i understand your trick sir you want to take advantage of some malicious reports concerning things in this family and particularly respecting my father's sudden death thereby to cheat me out of the money and perhaps take away my character by insinuating that i have received the rent i am demanding where do you suppose the money to be i insist upon knowing my good sire so everything looked so muckle against him that he grew nearly desperate however 
he shifted from one foot to another looked to every corner of the room and made no answer speak out sirrah said the lad assuming a look of his father's a very particular ain which he had when he was angry it seemed as if the wrinkles of his frown made that self-same fearful shape of a horse's shoe in the middle of his brow speak out sir i will know your thoughts do you suppose that i have this money far be it bring me to say so said stephen do you charge any of my people with having taken it i would be late to charge them that may be innocent said my good sir and if there be any one that is guilty i have no proof somewhere the money must be if there is a word of truth in your story said sir john i ask where you think it is and demand a correct answer in hell if you will have my thoughts of it said my good sire driven to extremity in hell with your father his jackanape and his silver whistle down the stairs he ran for the parlour was no place for him after such a word and he heard the laird swearing blood and wounds behind him as fast as ever did sir robert and roaring for the bailey and the baron officer away rode my good sire to his chief creditor him they called lorry le Prick, to try if he could make anything out of him but when he told his story he got the worst word in his wame thief beggar and devour were the softest terms and to the boot of these hard terms Larry brought up the ill story of dipping his hand in the blood of God's saints, just as if a tenant could have helped riding with the laird, and that a laird like Sir Robert Redgauntlet. My good sir was by this time far beyond the bounds of patience, and while he and Larry were at deal speed the liars, he was one chancy enough to abuse the prick's doctrine as well as the man and said things that garred folk's flesh grew that heard them he was near just himself and he had lived wi a wild set in his day at last they parted and my good sire was to ride hame through the wood of pitmarkey that is a foe of black ferrers as they say i ken the wood but the ferrers may be black or white for what i can tell at the entry of the wood there is a wild common and on the edge of the common a little lonely change-house that was keepeth then by an hostler wife they should have called her to be four and there poor steenie cried for a mutchkin of brandy for he had had no refreshment the whole day tibby was earnest wi him to take a bite of meat but he could not think of it nor would he take his foot out of the stirrup and took up the brandy wholly at twa draughts, and named a toast at each. The first was the memory of Sir Robert Redgauntlet, and may he never lie quiet in his grave till he had righted his poor bond tenant, and the second was a health to man's enemy, if he would but get him back the fuck of Selick, or tell him what came of it, for he saw the whole world was like to regard him as a thief and a cheat, and he took that worse than even the ruin of his house and hold. On he rode, little caring where. It was a dark night turned, 
and the trees made it yet darker, and he let the beast take its ain road through the wood, when all of a sudden, from tired and wearied that it was before, the nag began to spring and flee and stand, that my good sire could hardly keep the saddle. Upon the wilt, a horseman, suddenly riding up beside him, said, That's a metal beast of yours, friend. Will you sell him? So saying, he touched the horse's neck with his riding wand, and it fell into its old hey-ho of a stumbling trot. But is spunk soon out of him, I think, continued the stranger, and that is like many a man's courage that thinks he would do great things. My good sire scarce listened to this, but spurred his horse with good e'en to your friend. But it's like the stranger was e'en that does not like to yield his point, for ride as steeny like he was a beside him at the self-same pace. At last my good sire Steeny Steenson grew half angry, and to say the truth, half feared. What is it that you want with me, friend? he said. If ye be a robber, I have nae money. If ye be a leal man, wanting company, I have nae heart to mirth or speaking. And if you want to ken the road, I scarce can it myself. If you will tell me your grief, said the stranger, I am one that though i have been sair miscarred in the world and the only hand for helping my friends so my good sire to ease his ain heart mere than from any hope of help told him the story from beginning to end it's a hard pinch said the stranger but i think i can help you if you could lend me the money sir and take a long day I can nae other help on earth, said my good sire. But there may be some under the earth, said the stranger. Come, I'll be frank with ye. I could lend you the money on bond, but you would maybe scruple my terms. Now, I can tell you that your old laird is disturbed in his grave by your curses and the wailing of your family, and if you dare venture to go to see him, he will give you the receipt. My good sire's hair stood on end at this proposal, but he thought his companion might be some humoursome child that was trying to frighten him, and might end with lending him the money. Besides, he was bold with brandy, and desperate with distress, and he said he had courage to go to the gate of hell, and a step farther for that receipt. The stranger laughed. Weel, they rode on through the thickest of the wood, when all of a sudden the horse stopped at the door of a great house, and but that he knew the place was ten miles off, my father would have thought he was at Red Gauntlet Castle. They rode into the outer courtyard, through the muckle-folding yets, underneath the old portcullis, and the whole front of the house was lighted, and there were pipes and fiddles, and as much dancing and deray within, as used to be at Sir Robert's house at Pace and Yule, and such high seasons. They lap up, and my good sire, as seemed to him, fastened his horse to the very ring he had tied him to that morning, 
when he gave to wit on the young Sir John. God, said my good sire, if Sir Robert's death be but a dream. He knocked at the hard door, just as he was wont, and his old acquaintance, Dougal McCullum, just after his wont too, came to open the door, and said, Piper Steeny, how you there, lad? Sir Robert has been crying for you. My good sire was like a man in a dream. He looked for the stranger, but he was gain for the time. At last he just tried to say, Ah, a dougal drive or are you living? I thought you had been dead. Never fresh yourself wi' me, said Dougal, but look to yourself, and see you take nothing from anybody here, neither meat, drink, or siller, except the receipt that is your ain. So saying, he led the way out through the halls and trances that were well kenned to my good sire, and into the old oak parlour, and there was as much singing of profane songs and barrelling of red wine and blasphemy and skulduddery as had ever been in Red Gauntlet Castle when it was at the blithest. But, Lord, take us in keeping. What a set of ghastly revellers there were that sat around that table. My good sire kenned many that had long before gained to their place, for often that he piped to the most part in the hall of Red Gauntlet. There was the fierce Middleton, and the dissolute Rothers, and the crafty Lauderdale, and Daliel with his bald head and a beard to his girdle, and Earlshall with Cameron's blood on his hand, and wild Bonshaw that tied blessed Mr. Cargill's limbs till the blood sprung, and Dumbarton Douglas, the twice-turned traitor beat the country and king, there was the bloody advocate Macanye, who, for his worldly wit and wisdom, had been to the rest as a god. And there was Claverhouse, as beautiful as when he lived, with his long, dark, curled locks streaming down over his laced buckcoat, and with his left hand always on his right spool blade to hide the wound that the silver bullet had made. He sat apart from them all, and looked at them with a melancholy, haughty countenance, while the rest hallooed and sang and laughed, that the room rang. But their smiles were fearfully contorted from time to time, and their laughter passed into such wild sounds as made my good sire's very nails grow blue, and chilled the marrow in his bones. They that waited at the table were just the wicked serving men and troopers that had done their work and cruel bidding on earth. There was the landlord of the Nethertone that helped to take our guile, and the bishop's summoner that they called the deal's rattlebag, and the wicked guardsmen in their laced coats, and the savage highland Amorites that shed blood like water, and many a proud serving man haughty of heart and bloody of hand, cringing to the rich and making them wickeder than they would be, grinding the poor to powder when the rich had broken them to fragments, and many, many more are coming and ganging 
are as busy in their vacation as if they had been alive. Sir Robert Redgauntlet, in the midst of all this fearful riot, cried with a voice like thunder, on Steenie Piper to come to the boardhead, where he was sitting, his legs stretched out before him, and swathed up with flannel, with his holster pistols aside him, while the great broadsword rusted against his chair, just as my good sire had seen him the last time upon earth. The very cushion for the jackanape was close to him, but the creature itself was not there. It was not its hour, it's likely, for he heard them say as he came forward, Is not the major come yet? And another answered, The jackanape will be here betimes the morn. And when my good sire came forward, Sir Robert, or his gaze, or the devil in his likeness, said, Wheel, Piper! Are ye settled with my son for the year's rent? With much ado, my father got breath to say that Sir John would not settle without his honour's receipt. Ye shall have that fortune of the pipe, Steenie, said the appearance of Sir Robert. Play us up, wheel, huddled, lucky. Now, this was a tune my good sire learned for a warlock that heard it when they were worshipping Satan at their meetings, and my good sire had sometimes played it at the ranting suppers in Red Gauntlet Castle, but never very willingly, and now he grew cold at the very name of it, and said for excuse he had nice pipes wi' him. McCollum, ye limb of Beelzebub, said the fearful Sir Robert, bring Steenie the pipes that I am keeping for him. McCallum brought a pair of pipes, might have served the piper of Donald of the Isles. But he gave my good sire a nudge as he offered them, and looking secretly and closely, Steenie saw that the chanter was of steel and heated to a white heat, so he had fair warning not to trust his fingers with it. So he excused himself again, and said he was faint and frightened, and had not wind enough to fill the bag. Then ye mun eat and drink, Steenie, said the figure, for we do little else here, and it's ill speaking between a foreman and a fasting. Now these were the very words that the bloody Earl of Douglas said to keep the king's messenger in hand while he cut the head of MacLennan of Bombay at the Threve Castle and put Steenie mare and mare on his guard. So he spoke up like a man, and said he came neither to eat nor drink nor make minstrelsy, but simply for his aim, to ken what was come of the money he had paid, and to get a discharge for it. And he was so stout-hearted by this time, that he charged Sir Robert for conscience's sake. He had no power to say the holy name, and as he hoped for peace and rest, to spread no snares for him, but just to give him his aim. The appearance gnashed its teeth and laughed, but it took from a large pocket-book the receipt, and handed it to Steenie. There is your receipt, ye pitiful cat, and for the money my dog-whelp of a son, I go look for it in the cat's cradle. My good sir uttered many thanks, and was about to return, when Sir Robert roared aloud, Stop, thou, thou suck-doddling son of a... 
I am not done with thee. Here we do nothing for nothing, and you must return on this very day twelvemonth to pay your master the homage that you owe me for my protection. My father's tongue was loosed of a suddenty, and he said aloud, I refer myself to God's pleasure and not to yours. He had no sooner uttered the word than all was dark around him, and he sank on the earth with such a sudden shock that he lost both breath and sense. How long Steenie lay there he could not tell, but when he came to himself he was lying in the old cuckyard of Redgauntlet Parishon, just at the door of the family aisle, and the scutcheon of the old knight Sir Robert hanging over his head. There was a deep morning fog on grass and gravestone around him, and his horse was feeding quietly beside the minister's twa cows. Steenie would have thought the hall was a dream, but he had the receipt in his hand, fairly written and signed by the old laird. Only the last letters of his name were a little disorderly, written like one seized with sudden pain. Sorely troubled in his mind, he left that dreary place, rode through the mist of Gauntlet Castle, and with much ado he got speech of the laird. Well, ye diver bankrupt, was the first word. Have ye brought me my rent? No, answered my good sire, I have not, but I have brought your honour Sir Robert's receipt for it. How, Sir, Sir Robert's receipt? You told me he had not given you one. Will your honour please to see it? That bit line is right. Sir John looked at every line and at every letter with much attention, and at last at the date which my good sire had not observed. From my appointed place, he read, this twenty-fifth of November. What? That is yesterday. Bullen thou must have gone to hell for this. I got it from your honour's father, whether he be in heaven or hell, I know not, said Steenie. I will debate you for a warlock to the privy council, said Sir John. I will send you to your master the devil, with the help of a tar-barrel and a torch. I intend to debate my soul to the presbytery, said Steenie, and tell them all I have seen last night. Work of things fitter for them to judge of than a borrowed man like me. Sir John paused, composed himself, and desired to hear the full history, and my good sir told it him from point to point, as I have told it you, neither more nor less. Sir John was silent again for a long time, and at last he said very composedly, Steenie, this story of yours concerns the honour of many a noble family besides mine, and if it be a leasing-making to keep yourself out of my danger, the least you can expect is to have a red-hot iron driven through your tongue, and that will be as bad as scalding your fingers we a red-hot chanter. But yet it may be true, Steenie, and if the money cast up, I shall not know what to think of it. But where shall we find the cat's cradle? There are cats enough about the old house, but I think they kitten without the ceremony of bed or cradle. We were best ask Hutchin, said my good sire. He cans o'er the odd corners about as well as another serving man that is now gain, and that I would not like to name. Ah, weel, Hutchin, when he was asked, 
told them that a ruinous turret lang disused next to the clock-house only accessible by a ladder for the opening was on the outside above the battlements was called of old the cat's cradle there will i go immediately said sir john and he took with what purpose heaven kens one of his father's pistols from the hall table where they had lain since the night he died and hastened to the battlements it was a dangerous place to climb for the ladder was old and frail and wanted ain or two rooms however up got sir john and entered at the turret door where his body stopped the only little light that was in the bit turret something flees at him we a vengeance mayst dang him back or bang gave the knight's pistol and hutchian that held the ladder and my good sire that stood beside him hears a loud skullock a minute after sir john flings the body of the jackanapes down to them and cries that the cellar is fund and that they should come up and help him and there was the beggar cellar sure enough and many are a thing besides that had been missing for many a day and sir john when he had riped the turret wheel led my good sire into the dining parlour and took him by the hand and spoke kindly to him and said he was sorry he should have doubted his word and that he would hereafter be a good master to him to make amends and now steenie said sir john although this vision of yours tends on the whole to my father's credit as an honest man that he should even after his death desire to see justice done to a poor man like you yet you are sensible that ill-dispositioned men might make bad constructions upon it concerning his soul's health so i think we had better lay the hail derdom on that ill-deedy creature major weir and say nothing about your dream in the wood of murky you had taen o'er muckle brandy to be very certain about anything and steenie this receipt his hand shook while he held it out it's but a queer kind of document and we will do best i think to put it quietly in the fire Odd, but for as queer as it is it's all the voucher i have for my rent said my good sir who was afraid it may be of losing the benefit of sir robert's discharge i will bear the contents to your credit in the rental book and give you a discharge under my own hand said sir john and that on the spot and steenie if you can hold your tongue about this matter you shall sit from this time downward at an easier rent money thanks to your honour said steenie who saw easily in what corner the wind was that doubtless i will be conformable to all your honour's commands only i would willingly speak with some powerful minister on the subject for i do not like the sort of summons of appointment which your honour's father do not call the phantom my father said sir john interrupting him wheel then the thing that was so like him said my good sir he spoke of my coming back to see him this time twelve month and it's a weight on my conscience ah wheel then said sir john if ye be so much distressed in mind ye may speak to our minister of the parish he is a douce man regards the honour of our family 
and the mayor that he may look for some patronage from me with that my father readily agreed that the receipt should be burnt and the laird threw it into the chimney with his ain hand burn it would not for them though but away it flew up the lum wi a lang train of sparks at its tail and a hissing noise like a squib my good sire gaed down to the manse and the minister when he had heard the story said it was his real opinion that though my good sire had gone very far in tempering with dangerous matters yet as he had refused the devil's arrows for such was the offer of meat and drink and had refused to do homage by piping at his bidding he hoped that if he held a circumspect walk hereafter satan could take little advantage by what was come and gain and indeed my good sire of his ain accord long forswore both the pipes and the brandy it was not even till the year was out and the fatal day passed that he would so much as take the fiddle or drink a scabar or tippany sir john made up his story about the jackanape as he liked himself and some believe till this day there was no more in the matter than the filching nature of the brute indeed he'll no hinder some to thread that it was nane of the old enemy that dougal and hutchian saw in the laird's room but only that one chancy creature the major capering on the coffin and that as to the blowing on the laird's whistle that was heard after he was dead the filthy brute could do that as well as the laird himself if no better but heaven kens the truth will first came out by the minister's wife after sir john and her ain goodman were bathed in the moulds and then my good sir who has failed in his limbs but not in his judgment or memory at least nothing to speak of was obliged to tell the real narrative to his friends for the credit of his good name he might else have been charged for a warlock the shades of evening were growing thicker around us as my conductor finished his long narrative with this moral yes see burkey it is nae chancy thing to take a stranger trouble for a guide when you're in an uncouth land i should not have made that inference said i your grandfather's adventure was fortunate for himself whom it saves from ruin and distress and fortunate for his landlord aye but they had both to sup the sauce of it sooner or later said wondering willie what was frusted was ne'er forgiven sir john died before he was much over three score and it was just like a moment's illness and for my good sire though he departed in fullness of life yet there was my father a yauld man of forty-five fell down betwixt the stilts of his plough and raised never again and left nae baron but me a poor sightless fatherless motherless creature could neither work nor want things gaed well enough at first for sir redwald redgauntlet the only son of sir john and the eye of old sir robert and weighs me the last of the honourable house took the firm of our hands 
and brought me into his household to have care of me. My head never settled since I lost him, and if I say another word about it, deal about will I have the heart to play the night. Look out, my gentle chap, he resumed in a different tone. You should see the lights at Buckenburn Glen by this time. End of Wandering Willie's Tale Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's Believe It or Not. George Washington, during his entire two terms as President of the United States, refused to shake hands. He always bowed in the belief that a handshake was beneath the dignity of a president. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the most considerate uncle. Richard Dawson of Bradley, England, was probably the most considerate uncle in history. He was a very large man, so on his deathbed he worried that his 300-pound body would be an inconvenience to his frail nephew after he died. So to spare his nephew the trouble, Dawson walked out to the garden where he dug his own grave. After he had finished digging, he laid down in the grave and he died. Believe it or not. <laughs> And that was Wandering Willie's Tale by Sir Walter Scott. That brings us to this week's episode of the Magnus Archives, a story about the things Binman find discarded in the trash. The Magnus Archives for this week is episode 5, Thrown Away. I'll be back after to introduce this week's old-time radio segment.
Episode 5, Thrown Away. Statement of Kieran Woodward regarding items recovered from the refuse of 93 Lancaster Road, Walthamstow. Original statement given February 23rd, 2009. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I work as a bin man for Waltham Forest Council. It's not a bad job, really, as long as you can handle the smell in the early mornings. Not to mention that when winter really gets going, it can be pretty unpleasant. I've had to chip ice off more than a few bins in my time just to get them open. Still, the pay's pretty decent. At least it is once you throw in the overtime and the bonuses, and once you've done the rounds, you're usually off for the day. So you're working fewer hours than your average office monkey. It's just that those hours tend to be a lot less pleasant than anything you're likely to find staring at some accounting spreadsheet. But I didn't come here to talk about the benefits and problems of working in waste collection, at least, I guess I came to talk about one very specific problem that I encountered last year when doing the rubbish collection for 93 Lancaster Road. Now, you encounter weird things in this job all the time. People have an odd mental block, this idea that as soon as they put something in the bin, it's gone. It's officially been made rubbish and no one will ever see it again. The fact that someone had to take it from your bin to the landfill or the recycling centre doesn't really enter their heads and nobody ever seems to realise that up to a dozen people might be seeing what you throw away before it finally disappears forever. But no, as far as the rest of the world thinks about it, once it's been thrown away, it's gone, far beyond all human understanding. This leaves those of us who work in waste collection seeing kind of a strange side to humanity, but an honest one at that. If you're a bit of a boozer, there's every chance that your bin men know how much you drink better than you do, because we empty all the bottles. And yes, we do remember we also get quite judgmental at times, although not about the things you might think. You can throw away a mountain of grotesque porn, and as long as you've tied it into neat bundles, we're fine with it. But if you throw away cat litter without properly bagging that, you'd better believe that you've earned the hatred of every bin man that ever slung a sack. Still, I'm getting off topic. Point is, the bag of doll's heads didn't bother me. I mean, it was freaky, don't get me wrong. Hundreds of small plastic heads staring out of the refuse sack at me. But aside from a slight rip on the side of the black bag, they were thrown away very neatly, and were easy enough to toss into the truck. The bag was full of them, mind. It was placed next to the green recycling bin, and at first I thought it was just a single doll with its head positioned near the tear. But when I tossed the bag into the truck, the rip split, spilling forth a whole bunch of the things. At a guess, I'd say there were over a hundred in there. They were made of hard, rigid plastic with that infant doll face that you seem to find on every toy like that. Several of them had different hair moulded or painted on, so it was clear that they weren't simply from a hundred or so of the same doll. Someone had spent time acquiring a whole variety of different dolls, which they then beheaded and stuffed into the sack. They were very battered, but not with age. It looked as though someone had taken the brand new heads and dragged them over rough concrete though I couldn't say whether they'd have been attached to the rest of the doll at the time. It was creepy, sure, but 
The sun was shining, and there were four of us working the truck that day, so it was easy enough to laugh it off. It was the old crew, me, David Attire, Matthew Wilkinson and Alan Parfitt, who drives, drove the truck. What it did do, though, was mark out 93 Lancaster Road in our minds as the dollhouse, since we spent the rest of the day making off-colour jokes about the sort of people who must live there. I said before that your bin man knows a lot about you. Now, that's probably not actually true for most people. We service hundreds of homes each day, and who can keep track of that many people? Who wants to? You do have houses, though, that you learn to keep an eye on. The sort of places that throw out strange or sometimes even dangerous things. Like I said, we probably know if you're an alcoholic, but it's not because we watch you obsessively or care about your health. It's because smashed bottles and broken glass are dangerous, and you learn to keep an eye out around houses where you're likely to find them. I read once that waste collection is the second most dangerous profession in England. Not sure I believe it. They said the first was farming. But you do see your fair share of injuries, so you learn to keep your eyes peeled and mark out in your mind which houses you want to stay wary of. Now, after that, the dollhouse became one of those houses for our crew. Not so much for any known danger, but when someone throws out a bin full of weird stuff like that, you never know what else they might decide to toss. Also, Alan, well, he had kind of a twisted sense of humour, and he loved the dollheads. When we told him, he insisted on stopping the truck and getting out to have a look. So after that, he always made a point to ask us to keep an eye on 93. And we did. The next couple of weeks, when we pulled up to 93, I took an extra second or two just to check for anything strange in the bins, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Alan especially was disappointed by this, but it was hardly something to dwell on, so we put it out of our minds and pressed on with the day's work. This continued for what must have been a few months, and the whole doll's head incident hadn't come up, except for a few interesting conversations at the recycling plant where, to be honest, I don't think anyone believed us, or if they did, they'd immediately try to top it with their own story of bizarre finds. It was the start of spring when we got the next strange bag from 93 Lancaster Road. Again, it was an unmarked black refuse bag placed next to the recycling bin. As soon as I saw it, I knew it was another one. The shape of it was too regular to be full of the normal assortment of rubbish. As I picked it up, I realised it was far too light as well. It seemed to weigh almost nothing, but was bulging with what sounded like a whole load of paper inside. I gave the others a look, and told them I thought we had another odd bag. David and Matt started discussing whether we should open it as this one didn't seem to have a rip like the last one, and we were still talking it over when Alan came back to see what was taking us so long. He knew where we were, and you could see it in his eyes that he'd been hoping this was the reason for the delay. One look at his face, and I knew that if we didn't open it, he would. I looked up towards the house, checking for anyone watching, but 93 was right near the start of our route, so it was still very early in the morning and all the lights were off. There was no sign of movement, so very carefully... I opened the bag. Inside was paper, as I expected. It seemed to be a single strip of thick white writing paper, maybe an inch wide. The paper was long, so long that it seemed like the whole bag was filled solely with this one piece of it, wrapped and curled and crumpled to fit inside. There was writing on it in another language, I think Latin. Matt, who was raised Catholic and never shut up about it, said he recognised it and claimed that it was the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, written over and over again. He seemed pretty rattled about it, 
especially at the fact that at certain points the edges of the paper seemed to be slightly singed, as though it had been passed over a candle or a lighter. He even seemed hesitant about throwing it in with the rest of the garbage, but we didn't have anything else we could actually do with it, so into the truck it went. Alan was smiling the rest of the shift, and there was a delight there that, quite frankly, had started to unsettle me a bit. As far as I was concerned, this was a bit of a letdown after the doll's heads, but the way the others had reacted put me a bit on edge. The third bag was the one that really changed things. It was a fortnight after the one with the prayer paper in it. As we approached 93, I noticed there was another bag sitting next to the bin. The others clearly noticed as well, as everyone went very quiet. The first two had been the only times there had been rubbish bags at the house that weren't in the actual bin itself so there was little doubt in my mind that this was going to be more creepy trash. Alan turned the engine off as we pulled level with the house and got out. Whatever was in this one, he was going to see it. The bag bulged, just like the others, but had a bumpy sort of look to its surface. We all stared at it for several seconds before I realised that the others were waiting for me to pick it up. I picked up the others and apparently this was how it was done now. It almost felt like a ritual. I walked over and lifted it off the ground. It was heavier than the last one, and as it moved it made a sound like shifting sand or gravel, or maybe more of a rattle. I started to carry it towards my colleagues to open it, when I accidentally caught the bottom of it on the low brick wall at the end of the small front garden. Already filled almost to bursting, the bag tore open easily. From the newly ripped hole poured teeth. Hundreds thousands of teeth. They came streaming down in a waterfall of white, cream and yellow, bouncing as they hit the pavement and gradually forming a pile of astounding size. When the bag was finally empty, we just stood there in silence, staring at the mountain of teeth that now lay on the ground before us. They looked like human teeth to me, but I wasn't exactly an expert and I sure as hell didn't want to check closer. Finally, David broke the silence by vomiting loudly into a nearby drain, and I backed away from the grisly mound. Even Alan looked shaken by this. I suppose some things are disconcerting, however grim your interests. We phoned the police. That's something else that people always forget about garbage men. We're perfectly capable of calling the police if we see obviously illegal stuff being thrown away. Usually we don't bother if it's just something small, but this... For this, we phoned the police. They came in surprisingly good time, and I reckon they were even more freaked out than we were. One of them took our statements while the other went up to the house itself to check on the occupants and see if they knew anything about the teeth. As the officer knocked on the door, we all strained to get a better look at what greeted her. There was no way after all this we were going to pass up a chance to actually get a look at the residents of 93 Lancaster Road. Eventually the door opened, and an old woman stood there, blinking in the early morning sunlight and clearly slightly alarmed to see the police. Needless to say, the old lady and her husband had no idea about any of the weird bags that had been appearing in their rubbish, and seemed properly upset when they were given the details. The police spent a good ten minutes doing their best to collect up all the teeth, and we were sent on our way. I have no idea what, if anything, the investigation turned up. Certainly I was never contacted by them again, and if any of the rest were, they didn't mention it. And for a while, that was it. We kept an eye out whenever we were headed down Lancaster Road, but 
didn't encounter any further ominous garbage bags. I thought maybe the involvement of the police had scared off whoever was leaving them. Maybe the police had caught the culprit and just hadn't told us. I did start to notice, though, that Alan wasn't doing well. He was often late to his shift, and when he finally got there he'd be exhausted and grumpy, snapping at everyone and rudely brushing off anyone asking about his health or how he was doing. He seemed even worse whenever we approached the end of Lancaster Road, sometimes speeding up the truck slightly so that we had to run to keep up. Eventually, after I tripped over the curb while hurrying and twisted my ankle, I confronted him, told me that whatever was going on with him he could talk about it or get over it, but that he clearly needed to deal with something. He got very quiet, and said he'd been watching number 93 some nights. Said he wanted to see whoever was dropping this stuff off, that he had to know. I don't know what I expected. Trouble at home, maybe, or depression, but this took me by surprise. I told him it was a really bad idea, that if the police were still investigating, they were more than likely to pick him up as the culprit, and even if they didn't, the old couple at 93 could just as easily get him arrested for harassment or stalking. Alan nodded along and agreed with me as I spoke, but I could see he wasn't listening. He just said again that he needed to know, told me he'd be careful, as though that was meant to reassure me. It didn't, but I could see I wasn't going to talk him out of it, and we ended in an uncomfortable silence. What I didn't say is that I'd almost done the same thing myself once or twice. There was something about this beyond anything else I'd encountered that... I don't know. It drew me in almost as much as it disgusted me. Almost. But not enough to do anything. And if I needed any further convincing that leaving it alone was the right decision, I only needed to look at Alan. As time went on, the bags under his eyes deepened. And I'd watch him down half a dozen energy drinks over the course of a morning just to get through his shift. I could have said something to our manager, but even then Alan was still my friend. And I didn't want to be the one to get him in any sort of trouble. Eventually, though, it came to a head anyway. Alan fell asleep at the wheel of the truck and drove it into a parked car. No one was hurt and the truck was going too slowly to do any real damage, but at that point it was enough to get him fired. We were sad to see him go, but to be honest, by the end of it he'd become quite unpleasant to be around and no one shed any real tears over it. We got a new member of our crew, a kid named Guy Wardman, and life continued in relative peace. For a while, anyway. Then, on the 8th of August last year, at nine minutes past two in the morning, I was woken up by a text message from Alan. It said, found him. I texted him back immediately. What had he found? Was it whoever was leaving the bags? Had he brought another one? No response. I texted Alan again to ask if he was okay. I sent that text a lot of times, but never heard back. I tried phoning him, but nobody answered. As the minutes stretched to hours, the worry that had been growing in my gut settled into a grim certainty, and I knew that Alan was gone. I also knew that I had to go to 93 Lancaster Road and see for myself. I got my coat and headed out into the night. I walked slowly, with a kind of reluctance, so the sky was starting to get light by the time I arrived. I knew what I'd find when I got there, and I was right. There was no sign of Alan, or of whoever he might have seen. There was, however, a new rubbish bag sitting there in its usual place. It was full, and this time the top of it had been tied off with a dark green ribbon. 
arranged in a bow like an old-fashioned Christmas present. It bulged in much the same way as the last one. I picked up the bag, which turned out to be quite light, and I took off the bow. Opening it, I saw shifting white, and for a second I was sure it was more teeth. Looking closer, though, I saw the truth. Packing peanuts. Polystyrene packing peanuts, enough to fill the bag to capacity. I almost felt relieved, until I realised there was something else in there. Something making it heavier than a bag of polystyrene should be. I closed my eyes and reached in, expecting to find something horrible inside. My hand closed instead around cold metal. I drew out a fist-sized lump of, I think it must have been copper or bronze, and had been roughly carved into the shape of a heart, but like a real heart, not like a Valentine's one. It was cold to the touch, like it had just come out of the freezer, and it almost stuck to my skin. Engraved on the side was the name Alan Parfit, the letters carved in with machine-like precision. That was the last sign of Alan I ever found, and as far as I'm aware, he's never been seen since. I gave the lump of metal to a friend of mine who works the medical waste run and owes me a favour. I asked him to throw it in with the shipment, as the medical incinerators burn hotter than any I have access to, and I figured that was my best shot at getting rid of it properly. I still work the Lancaster Road route, but since then there haven't been any more weird bags turning up at 93. Mostly I've just tried to forget about it. Statement ends. It's nice to have a statement where most of the particulars are easily verifiable. It comes with shorter supporting statements from David Attire and Matthew Wilkinson confirming the contents of the first three bags, as well as the details of Alan Parfitt's behaviour prior to his termination from the employment of local government. In an uncharacteristic example of actually dealing with modern technology, my predecessor had the good sense to make a copy of the final text conversation between Alan Parfitt and Mr Woodward. I had Martin conduct a follow-up interview with Mr Woodward last week, but it was unenlightening. Apparently there have been no further bags at number 93, and in the intervening years he has largely discounted many of the stranger aspects of his experience. I wasn't expecting much, as time generally makes people inclined to forget what they would rather not believe, but at least it got Martin out of the Institute for an afternoon, which is always a welcome relief. Sasha had more luck following up with the old police reports. Alan Parfitt was reported as a missing person by his brother Michael on the 20th of August 2009, and his location remains unknown. The bag of teeth is also corroborated by the police reports of police constables Suresh and Altman, though they can provide no further details as they never made an arrest or even located any suspects. The medical report on the teeth themselves does give one puzzling detail. The teeth were confirmed to be human, but more than that, as far as the examiner was able to determine, they were all in different stages of decay and didn't match any available dental records, but all 2,780 of them were the exact same tooth. End recording. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License.
Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit rustyquill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. of Collinsburg, Scotland, lived to the age of 100 years and four months, and she slept every night of her life in the same bed, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the woman who was killed by bashfulness. In this era of women who are anything but bashful around men, it would be hard to convince anyone that there was once a woman who died of bashfulness. From childhood, Teresa St. John of Rodet, France, had become violently ill unless she turned away whenever she was addressed. Her shyness was so severe that she dropped dead when she found herself face to face with a man for the first time in 80 years, believe it or not. That was episode five of the Magnus Archives, Thrown Away. And that brings us to our all-time radio segment for this episode. For your listening pleasure, yours cruelly presents the Weird Circle's adaptation of Wandering Willie's Tale, titled The Feast of Red Gauntlet. I'll be back after to close out the show.
magic circle. In this cave by the restless sea, we are met to call from out of the past stories, strange and weird. Bellkeeper, toll the bell so that all may know we are gathered again in the weird circle. that the swinging branches recall tonight. But I never hear their mournful movement without my thoughts gone backwards. Backwards to the doer years, the terrible times of Sir Robert Red Gauntlet. This countryside will long remember him, for our fathers used to draw breath thick when they heard him named. I, Steenie Steenson, was his tenant. And I and every tenant man in Sir Robert Red Gauntlet's ground had to join the master in his killing raids on the liberal Whigs. That night, Red Gauntlet hung three neighbor men I knew. My heart was like a stone, for I held no ill will against the men myself. And worse luck would have it, I was the last man to leave the frightful scene, for Davy, my old horse, went lame on me. The three dead men hung high over my head, the gibbet creaking and swaying as I looked over Davy. And all of a sudden, a stranger rode up through the woods. A lean, gaunt creature he was, in loose, ill-fitting clothes. And his white mare made no sound as she stepped on dry branches. I stood frozen a minute. And then somehow, I plucked courage to say, What are ye, man or spirit? I'm a stranger to you, though I'm not a stranger in these woods. Do you know where you are, Steenie Steenson? Not rightly, sir. We rode and rode, and I drank a, a deal of brandy for a, a... I didn't like the business we're about, and I paid little attention to our direction. This is the wood of the dead, Steenie. Uh -huh. If you kill in these woods, and you linger long enough for me to find you, then you must give an accounting. I'll have you know, sir. I, I had no part in the hanging of those three men there. Rust or salt. But your very presence gave consent. Did you protest? I'm a tenant of Red Gauntlet. My fathers and forefathers lived on his land. And it's the unwritten law, sir. We think and do as the Red Gauntlets. But I've no stomach for killing men on account of their opinions. Sir. Men like you of weak wills, Steenie Steenson, let the Red Gauntlets of the world rule with bloody hands. But you're in the wood of the dead tonight. And to these three men who hang on the gibbet, you must make some restitution. Well, sir, 
And how can I do anything now for dead men? They leave families, Steeny. Young ones and wives. You have a bag of silver hidden in your chimney at home. You must divide it among the three widows. But how can I do that, man? The money's for my rent. I've little gift for saving, and I'm two terms back now for the rent due to Red Gauntlet. There's just the right amount of the bag. It's all the money I have, sir. How you will pay your rent must be your own worry. But you shall not leave these woods tonight alive unless I know that you mean in your heart to divide that bag of silver among the three widows. Well, I'm no man to be blind to the corner the wind blows in. I don't know who you are or what you are, stranger. Maybe I'd soon not know. But I can feel you mean every word you say. I'll divide the money among the three families. Good. We'll meet again, Steeny Steenson. Someday. A very good night to you. And a good night, stranger, to... I started to say it, but the horseman and horse had vanished. Fairly melted into the woods before I could finish my words. Not a sound they made as the white mare stepped with a fine gait on the dead dry twigs. But keep my word I did to the ghostly stranger. The very next morning, I went to the three widows and gave them the money. Now came the problem for the rent. For Sir Robert Red Gauntlet was no man to be put off for more than two terms. And I was due to pay him that very day. Now, I'd, I'd done many a man a favor in the countryside by playing the bagpipes at weddings and all that sort of merriment. And I was what you might call in demand. So I went to the friends my bagpipes had made for me and asked them for the loan of some silver. From about 20 sources, I picked up the money to make the full amount. And away I trudged to Red Gauntlet's castle with a heavy purse. The old serving man, Dougal McCallum, met me in the great hall. He seemed beside himself with worry as he said, Steamy, the master is in an evil mood, for he's suffering hard with the gout. Well, pay the rent on my scout or no gout. Uh, by the way, Dougal, is Sir Robert's pet monkey, what's his name, there with him today? Aye, aye, the monkey made you weir, sitting like an evil spirit in his little red lace jacket, perched on the master's shoulder. Ah, uh, it's afraid he'd be. I hate that little jackanapes. Well, come, man. I'd like to get this business over. Uh, this way, Steeny. I've never seen the master look so bad. But don't you tell him so. Come in, come in. Don't be so slow about it. What are you, snails crawling in? Just you, jackanapes. I'll give you the back of my hand. Dougal, take the monk off my shoulder. Aye, sire. The major's full of chatter today. Come, monk. Uh, and he sit down like a good little beast on your pillow. Uh, Sir Robert, Steeny Steenson's come to pay his rent. Yes, Sir Robert, here, here I am, man. I see you, man, I see you. Are you come right-handed, you son of a thistle? Uh, no, Sir Robert. The rent for two terms is right here in the bag. Well, I'm surprised to get it all at once, I... Oh! Oh, this blasted gout is enough to drive a man... I'll make a pact with the devil himself. Oh, don't say things like that, Sir Robert. The evil one might hold you to it. <laughs> ah, you hypocrite, Steeny. You know as well as I do that everyone believes I've already made a pact with the devil. And everyone's sure of where I'm going when I die. I never listen to gossip, Sir Robert. Uh, now, if you'll count the silver and give me the receipt, I I'd best be going. All right, Steeny. Dougal. Take Steeny to the hall and give him a cup of brandy while I count the silver and 
drink out the receipt. Come along, Steeny, with some right fine brandy just down from Edinburgh. I'm never a man, Dougal, to refuse a sample. Oh, my feet! My axe is all blasted gout! Dougal! Hey? Bring me a bowl of cold water! Oh, the master is having a... Hey, you again. idiot! Oh, my heart! My heart! What's the matter? What can I do, Dougal? Is the master worse? Steeny, Steeny, run, man. Get on your horse and fly for the doctor. I'll do that. Sir Robert looks bad to me. Out of Red Gauntlet's castle, I rode as fast as I could and rode hard to bring Dr. McKenney. I felt in my grip bones this was no light illness of Red Gauntlet's. The doctor and I were soon back in the castle. And as we opened the door, I thought how uncommonly quiet it was. Then old Hutch and the butler come toward us. You're too late, Steeny, with the doctor. Steeny and I rode as fast as we could. What happened, man? The worst. Sir Robert Red Gauntlet is dead. Heaven keep us so. Well, well. That's sad news, Hutchin. Of course, I'll have to confirm the death and make out the proper papers. Yes, sir. I know. This way, please, sir. I tiptoed out and laughed that place of death, for I knew it only be in the way. And so deep was I in the thoughts of Red Gauntlet's end that I was a fair way home when of a sudden I remembered. Hadn't I left the silver for the rent there and never got a receipt? But then I considered old Dougal was a witness to the fact that I had brought the money. And in due time, it would all be put to rights. And so the matter would have been, had not the uncanniest bad luck happened the night before Red Gauntlet's funeral. That night, old Dougal invited Hutchins to his room for a round of drinks before they went to bed. Hutchins told me more than once about that strange night. Hadley was he seated in the room when Dougal said, Hutchins, we've both served the dead master a long, long time. I... And though Red Gauntlet may have used an iron hand to others, he was good to us. Well, here's long life to you, Dougal. Thank you, Hutchin. But I know I'm not long for this world. Oh, come now. Don't let the master of death make you morbid. It's not to the morbid. But you know the master and I were more like two brothers. I've followed Sir Robert through good and ill, through pool and stream. I've followed with a blind devotion. And though the master goes to the evil place, I too would have to follow. And I think it won't be long. Man, man, get hold of yourself. I'll begin to think Sir Robert's death has turned your reason. You're sure to think that when you hear what I have to tell you. As you know, Red Gauntlet lies in state in his own room. And I've been sleeping as usual in the room which adjoins his. If you remember, Sir Robert used to blow on his small silver whistle for me to come and turn him over in his bed. Well, Hutchin, as true as I'm alive this minute... Every night since Red Gauntlet's death, I've heard that whistle. I've heard that silver whistle blow of the night. Dougal, you make my hair stand on end. Man, you must have dreamed such a thing. I did not dream it. I heard the silver whistle. And so frozen was I with terror that I did not stir. But in the daytime, my conscience hurt me. For I can't let even death break my service to Sir Robert. Listen! There, there it is. Red Gauntlet's silver whistle. The Lord keep our souls. It's an awful sound. I've got to go, Hutchin. I've got to answer Red Gauntlet's call, just as I used to. But, man, you cannot be turning a corpse over in its bed. I've got to go. Stand by me, Hutchin. At least go with me to Red Gauntlet's door. I have no will for such doings, but I can't fail you in a pinch like this. Come, then. 
the master is impatient. Never did this hall seem so long, Dougal. Aren't we two idle-headed old men to be answering a silver whistle blown by a dead man? And on second thoughts, Dougal, maybe we only imagined we heard the whistle. We did not dream it, Hutchin. Oh, well, we're near to the master's bedroom now. A dread open in the door. Aye, the light of the candles might reveal to us more than we want to see. But open the door we must. Dougal, look. The dead master lies just as we left him. Dead and quiet. But Hutchin, look. Look on the foot of the bed. It's the foul fiend himself, the evil one. shocked were Dougal and Hutchin by the sight of the evil one sitting there at the foot of Red Gauntlet's bed that they fainted dead away. Finally, when Hutchin came out of the faint and gathered his wits about him, he found old Dougal lying in a heap dead. Dougal had joined Red Gauntlet in the last long journey. Now, when I heard about Dougal's death, I felt sad indeed. But I'm afraid I felt more pity for myself than anyone. For Dougal was the only witness to the silver I'd left for the two terms of rent. Now, Sir Robert Redgauntlet's son, Sir John, had come up from London for the funeral and to put things to right. In due time, he called me to come to see him, for I knew for certain he would. I stood before him in the great hall, and Sir John said, Steenie Steenson, uh, you're down here for two terms' rent. That's a whole year. Uh, please, Your Honor, Sir John, I paid it to your father. Oh, you got a receipt then, Dr. Steenie, and can produce it. Indeed, I hadn't time, sir. For no sooner had I set down the silver and Sir Robert was drawing the bag to him when he was taken with the pains that took him out of this wall. Oh, that's very unlucky. But perhaps you paid it in the presence of somebody. Aye, Sir John. There was nobody in, in the room but uh, Dougal McCallan. And as your honor knows, he soon followed the dead master. Very unlucky again, Steenie. It's very strange to me that no one has told me that a bag of silver was found on the table after my father died. Uh, perhaps the butler Hutchins knows something about it, son. All right, I'll see what he has to say. Hutchin! Hutchin! Yes, Sir John? Hutchin! I wonder that I was never told about a bag of silver left by Steenie Steenson the day my father died. It should have been found on this very table by which my father had been sitting. But we found no bag of silver, sir. I came running at once when the master cried out. And it was I who put the room to rights after we'd carried out the body. But it did leave the money right there on the table. Well, Hatchin, there's only one thing to do. Call all the servants together and question them. Hmm. And if I can find no proof that the bag of silver was stolen... What story, then, are you going to tell me, Steenie? Where will you suggest we look for the money? In the evil place, if you want my opinion, sir. In the evil place with your father and his silver whistle. I paid the money for the whole year's rent, and there's an end of it. Oh, no, it's not. You will produce the rent or the receipt for the rent by this time tomorrow, or I shall have you put in chains. Now get out! I rode away from the castle fairly seen red. Here I was, the same Steenie Steenson who only a few weeks before had been the most popular piper in the countryside, the toast of every feast and frolic. And now, of a sudden, men would be calling me names, a thief, a cheat, and worse. I rode on and on, little care in where my horse Davy led me. 
finally, I realized I was in a thick patch of wood. And I noticed of a sudden that beside me was riding a stranger, the lean gaunt man in ill-fitting clothes, on a white mare. A white mare that made no sound as she stepped on dry branches. Just as the night of the hanging, I said, What are ye, man of spirit? I'm your friend, Steenie. I've come to help you. Unless you can lend me money. There's no other help you can give me in this world. But there may be some help in another world. Now, I can tell you this. Sir Robert Redgauntlet is disturbed in his grave by your curses and black thoughts of him. And if you will venture to see him, he will give you the receipt. Stranger, I have the courage to go to the very gates of the evil place and a step further for that matter, for that receipt. All right, then, Steenie. Turn sharply to the left. <coughs> Make your horse wind in and out of that thick settlement of black fur. Here we are. But I, but I cannot believe my own eyes, sir. We're in the courtyard of Red Gauntlet's castle. Where the estate is miles away from this place. Yours is not the question, Steenie. Go to the castle door. Dougal will let you in. Dougal? Why, the man's as dead as a mackerel. What, what place am I in, sir? Courage, courage, Steenie. Remember, you must get that receipt. Go to the door. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Go away. Well. For it'll soon be dead myself as to be in the fix I'm in. Well, Davy, me good horse. <laughs> Goodbye. If I don't come back, you'll know I've gone to... Heavenly days. There's Dougal standing there waiting at the door for me. Dougal. Dougal, man. I never thought to see you alive again. I'm not alive, Steenie. I Now listen carefully. When you're inside Red Gauntlet's castle... Take nothing from anybody there, neither meat or drink or silver, for they will bind you to that unholy party. Take nothing except that receipt which is your own. Come. <laughs> oh, Dougal, what a ghastly scene of revelers. There's the fierce Middleton and the dissolute Ross and the crafty Lauder there and the wild Bunshaw and all the other wicked ones I've known and played the bagpipes for at feast. And every one of them dead now. And yet I see them laughing and reveling there. But take note, Steenie, in death as in life, it's my master, Sir Robert Redgauntlet, who has the place of honor at the feast. Hello, friends. It's Steenie Steenson. Look who's come to visit us. Hey, yes, sir. How's your health, sir? <laughs> Did you hear that, man? How's my health? Why, Sini, it's as bad as could be expected. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, sir. But where's Major, your monkey? It seems strange to see you without your pet, sir. Here is a little cushion ready for the monk. Before nightfall tomorrow, the little lake will be with me. Well, no, yeah. let's get to business. You've come here for that receipt for your year's rent, haven't you, Steenie? Uh, yes, sir, and if you'll kindly give it to me, I'll go. Oh, but first you must play me a tune of the bagpipes. Dougal! Dougal, you'll never be above. Bring Steenie the pipes I've been keeping for him. Robert, sir, Robert, this scene in your awesome presence has fairly taken my breath away. I fear I have none left to play the pipes. Then you must eat and drink, Steenie, for we do little else here. 
And it's likely to be ill-speaking between a full man and a fasting one. I've not come to eat or drink, sir, but simply for what's known. Give me that receipt. All right, you pitiful cur. All right, here and now. Dougal, bring me the quill. I have everything ready, sir. Good. Here, here. This, 25th of November, from my appointed place, I, Sir Robert Red Gauntlet, do assert that Steeny Steenson paid me in silver one year's rent. Sir, Steeny's your receipt. Oh, thank you, sir. And tell my rogue of a son to go look for the bag of silver in the cat's cradle. In the cat's cradle, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. No, 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 not so fast, my man. I am not done with you. Here we do nothing for nothing. On a year this very day, you must return and play the pipes for me. That will be your payment and my pleasure. I didn't care a for your pleasure, sir. I'd affirm myself only to the good Lord. At the mention of the holy name, it seemed to me that the whole earth shook, and I lost both breath and scent. When I came to it, it was early morning. I was in the woods, a full five miles from home, and Davy, my horse, was feeding nearby. And then I laughed, and I thought what a nightmare of a dream I had. But then I realized I was holding something tight in my hands. And I looked, and I found I held a receipt for the rent, signed by Sir Robert Redgauntlet. With my mind fairly in a daze, I rode at once to the castle and demanded to see Sir John. Looking like a fresh thunderstorm, Sir John greeted me with sour words. If you have come with the excuse to save your breath, Steenie. Have you brought me the rent? No, sir, I have not. But I brought Sir Robert's receipt for it. But you told me only yesterday that he had not given you one. Will your honor please look at this bit of writing? Hmm, all right. Hmm. Looks like my father's hand, I must say. This 25th of November, from my appointed place. But the 25th of November was yesterday. If you got this receipt, Steenie, you must have gone to Hades for it. I got it from your honor's father, sir. Whether he be in heaven or someplace else, I don't know. And besides, uh, Sir Robert sent a message to you. He said you were to look for the bag of silver at a catch cradle. I'm beginning to think you're either mad or a sorcerer. And I hope you recall that it was only a month ago in the village when a sorcerer was burned at the stake. I admit I have a long, strange tale to tell, sir, but you'll only believe it if we do find that bag of silver at the catch cradle. Oh, I never heard such childish nonsense. I don't know any place around here by that name. Please, sir, ask old Hutchin. He knows things about the castle that everybody else has forgot. All right, all right. You rang, sir? Hatchian, do you know a place about the castle called the Cat's Cradle? Oh, yes, sir. It's a ruinous turret long out of use, next to the clock house. One can only get to it by a ladder, for the opening's on the outside. Hmm. It's many long years since I've heard anyone inquire about the Cat's Cradle. Thank you, Hutchin. Come along, Steenie. We'll go to the Cat's Cradle and see what we find. Just in case I need it, I think I'll take this pistol. It was my father's. For what purpose, sir? It has silver bullets. And they say that silver bullets are the only kind effective against mad men and sorcerers. Come, Steenie. Yes, sir. I hope for your sake I find something up here, Steenie. What? What could that be? Oh, Sir John, that's your father's silver whistle. 
come down, sir. Come down. I'm afraid you, well, you'll see that, sir. Nonsense. I'll find out for myself. Uh, there's Red Gauntlet's pet monkey, Major Weir. Look. Look, Steenie. It's the monkey that's blowing the whistle. Be careful, Sir John. That monk can be mean, awful mean, sir. Oh, I can take care of myself. Give me that whistle, you little ape. Watch out. The monk will stretch your eyes out. Get away from me. You still get away. Do it. Can you see inside the turret now? Too bad I had to shoot him. Yes. Yes, now find the bag of silver, Steenie. Here. Here. Get it. A little thief of an ape. He stole the bag and hid it there. Now, watch out. I'm coming down. Uh, oh. That turret's full of the junk the monkey stole. I'll have and clean it out. Well, Sir John, I guess you'll have to believe I'm not a liar now. Yes, we've solved the mystery of the missing bag of silver. Perhaps another mystery. I believe it's the monkey that blew the silver whistle those nights. Dougal thought it was my dead father. But we haven't solved the mystery of the receipt, Steenie. But I did talk to your father last night, and he gave me that receipt. For proof, didn't I deliver your father's message to go look at the cat's cradle for the bag of silver? Yes, Steenie, and I'm very worried. If this story gets out, uh, you know what the villagers will say. That you must have strange paws. That you must be a... a sorcerer. I know, Sir John. And I was also thinking... It wouldn't be to your credit of your good family's name for the story to get about where your father's gone. But I swear it wasn't in heaven that I found myself last night. Oh. I see what you mean, Steenie. Well, uh, shall we agree to uh, keep the secret just between us? Aye, Sir John, we'll keep it. Maybe we can tell it someday to our grandchildren, for they'll think they're mo so modern they won't believe the story anyway. Let's see once again next time for another immortal tale in The Weird Circle.
That was the Weird Circle's adaptation of Wandering Willie's Tale, called The Feast of Red Gauntlet. And that brings us to the end of this week's show, dear listener. I hope that you've enjoyed our time together. Before we leave, I just need to do some housekeeping. First, please remember that our listeners can submit their story suggestions using our form on Google. All information is on that form, and a link will be in the show notes. Second, we have an email for you to send your questions and comments to. You can contact yours cruelly at timefordread at gmail.com. Third, the Radio for Humans Patreon will be launching soon. If you enjoy this program or any others here on Radio for Humans, please consider signing up for a recurring donation there when it does. Finally, all incidental music heard on this program comes to us courtesy of tabletopaudio.com. Tabletop Audio, music for wherever you work, podcast, or play. Dungeons and Dragons. And with that, dear listener, our program comes to a close. As always, until next we meet, unpleasant dreams. <laughs>